special episode of Dialogue Podcast. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. Last month, I was interviewed by Blair Hodges for his amazing podcast, Fireside, one of the many great shows in the Dialogue Podcast Network. If you haven't heard of Blair before, you're really missing out. He has a bachelor's in journalism from the University of Utah and a master's in religious studies from Georgetown University. He's the former host of the Maxwell Institute podcast, and with Fireside, Blair is bringing us his thoughtful approach to life and religion by interviewing a diverse lineup of thinkers and writers. In this special episode, we discuss my book, Tabernacles of Clay, and how questions of gender and sexuality, where Christianity and Mormonism are concerned, have evolved and continue to evolve. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to subscribe to Fireside with Blair Hodges wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy. Historians can't predict, of course, though I can say with confidence that there will be changes. Taylor Petrie was studying early Christianity at Harvard University, and he started to notice how early Christians had a surprising variety of ideas about sex and gender. So much was up for grabs, and for Petrie, that ancient history made him wonder about current issues about sex and gender in his own religious tradition. You know, as a Latter-day Saint, these were issues that everybody was just kind of talking and thinking about. They were issues that were affecting people's families, people's lives, people's marriages. Take gender, for example current Latter-day Saint doctrine states it's an eternal human characteristic, but when Petrie started digging in the Mormon archives, he found other options. It turns out that not that long ago, Latter-day Saint leaders actually had a very different view, putting forward this idea that before we were born, it wasn't necessarily the case that we were male and female, that we maybe had some choice or discretion in the matter. Now that idea didn't stick around, but it does make you wonder what else was up for grabs. Yeah! Welcome back to Fireside with Blair Hodges. Taylor Petrie joins us in this episode to talk about his book, Tabernacles of Clay, Sexuality and Gender in Modern Mormonism. This book covers the fascinating history, all the twists and turns in Latter-day Saint thought about things like the proper role of women and men, or about LGBTQ issues, and more. And by looking back at this history, we might get a clearer view of where things are right now and how things might go in the future. It's difficult to say what changes we're going to see in the future. I think that we can kind of look over the last 70-year period that I cover in the book and draw a number of different lessons and possibilities of things that the church might do. This is episode 10, Options. Taylor Petrie, welcome to Fireside. It's nice to have you here. Thank you, Blair. It's a great pleasure to be here. We're talking about your book, Tabernacles of Clay, Sexuality and Gender in Modern Mormonism. And I thought we'd just begin with the standard question of why you began to do this topic, how this became a book. Well, it was a little bit of an accident. Uh, I, I never intended to write a book on LDS history. I didn't intend to kind of get into this subject area. I kind of fell into it. In, in part, maybe I felt impelled to do it. 
you know, I was a graduate student in the 2000s, and the church was, of course, getting involved in uh, national same-sex marriage issues during that time period, and it was the kind of thing that everybody was talking about, and I was thinking about it as a graduate student and thought, you know, uh, I'll maybe just have one thing to say. I wrote one article about it in 2011 and um, thought that that would be the last thing that I would do. And then I just kind of kept coming back and back to the topic and feeling like, oh, somebody needs to write a history. And I expected one of the really wonderful, great historians uh, out there to kind of take this up. And I kept looking around, looking around for someone to do it. And I finally found myself in the mirror and was like, well, why don't you do it? So (laughs) that's how it happened. So this is a book that talks about gender roles, uh, men and women. It talks about sexuality. It talks about LGBTQ issues. And as you said, you published that first article. It's been a decade now. It's been 10 years. That's right. Have you seen a lot of change over that time? What's your perspective on, on the overall scope? Yeah, in some respects, not much has changed in the church. The church still very strongly opposes same-sex marriage. It's made a few minor accommodations around some issues with sexual identity, gender identity, and a few things along those lines. The church has changed on a couple of things around its political stances during the last decade. But the larger cultural context has really shifted. You know, even 10 years ago, a majority of Americans still opposed same-sex marriage. The tide was turning for sure, but uh, once same-sex marriage was finally legalized in 2015 all around the country, that really kind of pushed it over the edge. And I don't know what the numbers are right now, but they were well over 70% not that long ago. Mm. And that's a huge dramatic shift for the, the context that the church finds itself in. So though the church hasn't changed that much, members of the church and non-members of the church definitely see this issue very differently than they did even just a decade ago. Hmm. How about members of the church in regard to same-sex marriage? Have those numbers gone up as well? They have, and and we don't have, I don't have at least access to the most recent numbers, but even as just a few years ago, a majority of younger members of the church, of millennial members, did not have oppositions to homosexuality, to same-sex marriage. That didn't necessarily mean that they wanted it to change in the church, but at least their social attitudes had dramatically shifted. Older members of the church still, uh, a majority oppose same-sex marriage and and homosexuality in, in culture, though even those numbers were dropping as time moved on. And so I suspect that if we were to do polls today that we would we would see, you know, even sharper increases among young Latter-day Saints and their uh, their attitudes on this issue that are at divergence with what senior leadership of the church where they might be. I know uh, I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and my own views have shifted on this over the past 10, 15 years as well. So I've, I feel like I've been traveling through this history myself. And speaking of background, you as well, let's talk a little bit about your background. People that have listened to Fireside might recognize your voice from some of the little commercial spots we have. You're the editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, and you have a Latter-day Saint background. Talk a little bit about that and how that affected this project. Yeah, I, I think in part, you know, this is how I got involved in the project to begin with. My original academic training is actually in early Christianity, and I was writing and thinking about gender studies in, in relationship to early Christian sources and history. But uh, of course, you know, as a Latter-day Saint over the last uh, 20 years or, or, or more, you know, these were issues that, again, everybody was just kind of talking and thinking about. They were issues that were affecting people's families, people's lives, people's marriages. And, you know, I, I just felt 
drawn to the topic, I guess, and thought, well, maybe I've got something to say about it, given my other training in religious studies and in gender studies. And so I uh, came to the field of Mormon studies really in some ways as an outsider, as somebody not trained in it, but as a Latter-day Saint who is, uh, you know, uh, familiar with the sort of basic context, the vocabulary, uh, uh, the personalities and so on. And so, you know, really had to work hard to kind of train myself in contemporary history and in American history, those kinds of things that I didn't really have any immediate background in. But uh, but hopefully the end product really kind of shined some some new light onto things that maybe other people had missed. Do you think being a practicing member of the church affected the way you approached the project or the kind of questions that you asked? I don't know. Uh, It's interesting, I think, as a scholar of religion, we're so used to sort of approaching our subject area from a certain set of methodological standpoints that it doesn't necessarily matter if you're inside or outside. Uh, I think that my my familiarity as, as an insider certainly helped kind of my initial sort of understanding, again, of the lay of the land. But I don't know. I don't know. Maybe other people would have an opinion on it as uh, looking at me from the outside. But I don't know if it necessarily affected the kind of analysis. It, it's the reason why I took up the project to begin with. You know, it was something that was important to me uh, because of that. I had a sort of personal connection to it. But I, I don't know if I would say that it affected the analysis or that if, if it sort of drove the outcome in some way. I know when I talk to scholars of religion who practice a religion that they've done work on, sometimes feel pressure, and this happens within Mormon studies, but it happens in in other areas as well, where people within the tradition really want the scholar to arbitrate truth. They want the scholar to get into whether a religion is true or false or or right or wrong. And those aren't really the questions that scholars tend to ask. Yeah, I think so. Perhaps the sort of person on the street expectation of what a scholar of religion might do is to arbitrate truth or something. And, and really what we're trying to do is is explain things and, and to understand, uh, to sort of even have a, a sympathetic approach to making sense of what's going on. That doesn't mean that you can't disagree or agree, uh, and scholars of religion privately and publicly will often do that, but the primary goal is not necessarily to, again, say, yes, this is right or this is wrong, but to say, here's what's going on. Here's why people were thinking this, and here, here were the issues that were sort of informing their approach. Well, let's dig into chapter one here. So this book deals a lot with LGBT issues, but it also zooms out broader than that. So here in chapter one, it's called Pure Marriage, and you take readers to the early 1900s. You don't go all the way back to the beginning of the church. You go to the early 1900s when you say that Mormonism was really interested at this time in racial purity and gender purity during this time. Let's let's start with racial purity. What were Latter-day Saint leaders talking about at this time when it comes to race and gender and sex? I didn't initially intend to start the book there when I was conceiving of it. I was thinking about writing a history of sexuality of the Latter-day Saint tradition and thought, well, of course, I'll have to talk about polygamy. And there were these big changes that were happening there. And uh, that, you know, the, the last time that the church had really changed its teachings on marriage and the family were the shift from polygamy to monogamy. But as I was getting into the research, I really discovered that the more recent and and maybe in some ways much more important change that the church had with respect to marriage and sexuality had to do with their teachings on race and interracial marriage. And to sort of look at the changes that the church's teachings on marriage with respect to race had on uh, sort of shaping a lot of the later trajectory of the church up until today – 
church leaders took an interest in what they were calling and thinking uh, of as racial purity in the 1950s and 1960s and sort of monitoring and maintaining those boundaries between the races because they believed in sort of racial lineages as divinely ordained. These were broader doctrines of uh, American Christianity that Latter-day Saints had sort of uh, adopted into their own understanding and had been very, very crucial to the 19th and early 20th century notions of Mormonism, these kind of ideas of these cursed lineages or these blessed lineages, and the church was in search of those who were descended from these blessed lineages and so on. These sort of doctrines of blood and lineage and and descent were so important that, again, they were kind of affecting the way that the church talked and thought about marriage and sexuality. And one of the major reasons that they opposed interracial marriage was because of this idea that there were lineages that needed to be sort of kept pure from one another. And that's an interrelated idea to the same kinds of things that they were saying about gender during this time period, that gender also needed to be maintained as pure and that the intermingling of the sexes uh, when men became more like women or women became more like men was going to sort of frustrate the divine design, the divine intent for the world in some way. And so I try to think about the doctrines about race and the doctrines about gender as joint ideologies that were emerging in the middle of the 20th century and that really dominated the way that the church structured its teachings, its public policy, and uh, the practices that they were engaging in in the church itself, the sort of programs that they were creating during that time period. And Latter-day Saints, and especially Latter-day Saint leaders, shared a lot of views with with people who weren't Latter-day Saints. In the book here, you're quoting from a Virginia judge, uh, Leon Bazil. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but this is in the Loving versus Virginia case of about interracial marriage, where this judge says the almighty God created the races, white, black, yellow, melee, and red. The fact that he separated the races shows that he did not intend for the races to mix. And Latter-day Saint leaders shared these ideas. J. Reuben Clark, for example, called interracial marriage a wicked virus in, in 1946. So this wasn't just about preference or taste or anything. They actually rooted this in God's will that mixing particular races was literally against God. That's right. And and there are later views that emerge in the church that uh, try to soften or walk away from those perspectives until they're eventually abandoned, uh, though I think that they still linger in certain sections of the church. Where would you say they linger at? Well, I don't want to get too specific, but Do know, certain regions, certain regions <laughs> maybe in the country where uh, interracial marriage or, or racial attitudes in the church maybe still lag behind the broader American culture. And there's a kind of holding on to maybe some of these older ideas. Modern church leaders don't teach these things. They haven't, they haven't said anything explicitly about interracial marriage in decades. Some of the senior apostles are in interracial marriages. You know, we really see have seen, I think, a sea change in, in some respects in the church, but I don't want to ever say that these ideas have gone away completely mm-hmm. because many members of the church report in their personal experiences and, again, in different regions and so on, that these attitudes do persist uh, based on some of these older teachings. I know it as recently as a few years ago, and it may very well still be there. I know there was a marriage and family textbook or, or a book on the church's official website that discouraged interracial marriage as recently as a few years ago. And again, it, it might still be there. I haven't looked it up, but you kind of trace that shift away from saying that it was God's will to more social concerns. This is what you say with like Spencer W. Kimball in the 70s. They, they changed the discourse away from this is God's will or this is an abomination 
over to it's not a very good idea because it might cause problems. There was a kind of general softening of the church's teachings on race in general, and especially with respect to interracial marriage uh, from the 50s to 60s to the 70s, where we originally see these ideas, the opposition to interracial marriage as a doctrine, as divinely ordained, an unchangeable thing to then sort of being downgraded to wise counsel. And Spencer W. Kimball is a key figure in this transition, and he puts out a teaching in 1976 that he says that we discourage it because you're coming from different backgrounds and those marriages are less stable. You know, So he's trying to put forward kind of some secular arguments for it rather than saying it's sort of you know, the divine will here. And fortunately, that's a, a little bit, again, of a softening of that doctrine. Unfortunately, the sort of wise counsel discouraging interracial marriage teaching is precisely the thing that kind of persists in Latter-day Saint culture. Uh, that quote from Spencer W. Kimball has been reprinted many, many times, as you said, uh, you know, very recently, even up the last time I checked, it was in the 2015 or 2016 Young Men's instruction manual for the church. And so we do still see, again, the persistence of that advice being put forward, not as a doctrine anymore, but as as counsel. And of course, many, many people are, are objecting to that and have been advocating to get that quote, you know, stopped being uh, reprinted again and again. But yes, those attitudes do persist and, and sometimes appear in official church teachings. All right. So we see that shift in racial purity in this chapter. The other thing that you cover, as I mentioned earlier, is gender purity. And after World War II, you talk about how national ideas about gender were evolving at this time. What was happening after World War II? What did we see with genders? There were sort of two kinds of things that were happening simultaneously after World War II. On the one hand, you know, many women had gone to work during World War II because the men were off fighting. And so there had been a kind of early feminist awakening, a, a liberation that women had newfound freedoms, financial independence, marriages taking place a little bit later. And so we had a kind of proto-feminist thing. And then a big backlash after World War II ended where there's a large effort, not only in the church, but in American culture to kind of reinstitute patriarchal authority in the home, to give, give uh, men economic advantages over women and, and so on. And so there are these two competing things that are happening, which eventually erupt in the 1960s feminist movement, which is calling out the domesticity that was being imposed on women during the post-World War II era as really quite constraining. And so women start to want to get jobs and get higher education and delay childbearing or have uh, help in childbearing and, and child raising and expecting husbands to contribute more to home life. So there are all these kinds of cultural conflicts that are happening in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, and the church finds itself really right in the middle of these large culture wars. I was really struck to see you point out that as Latter-day Saints talked about men's role in the home as this sort of presider in the home, in some ways actually kind of encroached on what was typically understood to be a woman's sphere and that there were these interesting little power struggles or power shifts that were happening within the home between men and women. It's common to think that the gender role expectations during this time period were that men were working out in the home and that women kind of had control in the home, that they were sort of the head of the household. But really, you see Latter-day Saints very wary of even giving that much control to women. Uh, the sort of resurgence of patriarchy in the church 
insisted that men actually be the leaders in the home as well. Men's authority was really such that it was not only outside the home, but also in the home. And so there are several programs put into place to sort of reaffirm men's leadership in the home. Just one example is the Family Home Evening Program, which is really kind of rejuvenated, if not really invented during this time period, with the explicit goal of making sure that men are in charge of the home. Men are supposed to be organizing family home evening. And it comes as not much of a shock to many Latter-day Saints, but even back in the 1960s, it turns out that the wives were the <laughs> ones who were doing all of the work. Right. And, you know, very soon after this, I think within a year or two of the program, again, Spencer W. Kimball says, I am shocked that there are some men who are letting their wives decide who gives the prayers in family home evening. You know, men, you've got to take these leadership roles. And so, you know, a lot of the programs of the church are, are meant to kind of make sure that men are in charge in all spaces of life. We see in this period, as you highlight, this increasing emphasis on this idea that men provide and that women nurture, this separation of, of roles and men as the head and women as the heart of the family. I hear less of that, of that idea, the head and the heart. I, I feel like I don't hear a lot about that one, but I, obviously the providing and nurture thing is still going strong within Mormon culture. That's right. That sort of head and heart language was one that was often repeated, assigning rationality and decision-making to men and nurturing and comforting and feelings to women. You know, they sort of were assigning these gender roles in that very language of, of attempting to describe them. You're right that, that definitely we see a walking back, I think, of that. And one of the changes that, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit is the rising changes of the culture of the church members that is really kind of insisting and expecting more egalitarian relationships. Mm -hmm. And so we start to see some further and further accommodation towards that kind of egalitarian impulse to sort of stand side by side with the kind of patriarchal order of marriage as is being taught. Yeah, and this chapter also has something that really caught me off guard. Mormon theology about the origins or the root of sex and gender were actually still up for grabs during this period. So you're looking at different church leaders teaching different things about where sex and gender originated. And so, as I said, it seemed like an open question here. We have different views. Talk, talk about some of those different views, what they looked like during this period. You know, I was really struck by this part as well. And one of the research questions that I had when I first started the book was to understand the history of the doctrines that gender is an eternal characteristic. Latter-day Saints teach this, and, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about it down the line, but it becomes an official doctrine of the church, that gender is eternal. But it turns out that not that long ago, Latter-day Saint leaders actually had a very different view, thinking that gender was quite contingent and unstable. There are a number of different places where we see church leaders, most notably Joseph Fielding Smith, one of the most prominent and, and important church leaders and intellectuals of the church in the 1950s and 60s, putting forward this idea that before we were born, it wasn't necessarily the case that we were male and female, that we maybe had some choice or discretion in the matter. And after we die, it's not guaranteed that we'll be male or female either. Only those at the highest levels of the celestial kingdom will be male and female. And I think that, you know, in some cases, both of these are a little bit funny, but they were dealing with a kind of similar issue around the hierarchies around gender as they were around race. And this is, again, where I want to bring race back into the conversation. 
There's a talk given in the 1960s that says, well, why don't women have the priesthood? And this is the same question, of course, that people are asking about uh, people of African descent. Why don't people of African descent have the priesthood? And the answer that many Latter-day Saints had been giving in the 1960s around African descent was that something happened in the pre-existence. The choices that people had made in the pre-existence sort of determined these racial lineages, and some racial lineages were going to be given the priesthood and others were going to be denied it. And so if you were descended from that, it was because of choices that you had made in the pre-existence. Well, Latter-day Saints apply the same logic to the hierarchy between men and women, and they say, well, you must have made some choice in the pre-existence to decide that you were going to be a mother, and others decided that they were going to be priesthood bearers. And so they were kind of saying some sort of explanation for the hierarchy couldn't be because God imposed some sort of unjust hierarchy, but rather that it was the result of our own choices, our own agency. So they were kind of solving the problem of of women not having the priesthood in the exact same ways that they were dealing with race. Uh, And then after death, you know, one of my favorite stories about Joseph Fielding Smith is that he's responding to letters from members of the church. For, for many decades, he did this. They were a column that he would do, but then they're compiled in his books, uh, The Doctrines of Salvation and so on. And one of these letters, somebody asks him, well, aren't all those unrighteous, unmarried people just going to be having illicit sex in the afterlife, right? If they were so bad to, to not merit the uh, highest levels of the celestial kingdom, aren't they, of course, just going to have sex all the time? You know, what's going to stop them? And he says they're not going to be male or female. They're going to be genderless in the afterlife, and that's why they won't be able to have sex. So he kind of solves the problem of a potential for illicit sex by just getting rid of sexual difference entirely for at least the vast majority of human beings. Uh, He says most people are going to be in this category are going to be neither male or female in the afterlife. And so this notion that this was sort of a settled doctrine and it always been a settled doctrine that gender was eternal turns out to not really be true. The most senior leaders and most uh, uh, some of the most influential leaders of the church during this time period did not believe that at all. One thing I would ask is, I remember hearing about, I remember reading this actually. I think the first time I read this is probably as a missionary. I was reading his uh, answers to gospel questions and came across this one. Wouldn't it also be the case though that they just didn't have genitals? Like, so they would still be men and women. They just wouldn't be able to do anything about it. Well, that's one possible explanation. And some people who I think try to soften what he's saying uh, have kind of put that forward. But he actually says they will be neither male nor female. And really there, he's actually quoting scripture to make that argument. Mm -hmm. This isn't just something he's making up. He's quoting Galatians 3.28, which says that in Christ, they should neither be male nor female. And so he's not only suggesting that they don't have genitals, Mm -hmm. but actually that their sexual difference entirely is erased. Yeah, so you're seeing these different views. We have different BYU religion professors saying that there's no primal intelligence that had uh, a gender or sex. You have assistance to the 12 giving talks in general conference talking about making a choice about what sex. And then you have people like uh, James Talmadge, who's teaching that gender's eternal, that male and female have been such from the beginning. So there's all these different ideas. It, it was striking to me to see that it was kind of up for grabs and to see that there were just particular voices that kind of carried the day on this uh, so that it became mainstream Mormon doctrine. I definitely want to say that there have been Latter-day Saints who have believed that gender is an eternal characteristic throughout time. And you can look to different periods. 
I don't think that that was the dominant view in the 1950s and 60s, though. As much as I look to try to understand this time period, first of all, there aren't a lot of statements on it at all. It wasn't a doctrine that they were really particularly worried about or thinking about. But the statements that you do see it are, again, along the lines of a kind of gender fluidity in, in the afterlife and in the preexistence and, and so on. And, you know, again, it's hard to say what was the majority teaching of the church during the time period. You know, we just don't have surveys, for instance, yeah, of general right. authorities. But when people did talk about it. The kinds of things that they were saying were not along the lines of gender is eternal. I think that the notion that gender is eternal reemerges in the 1970s and 80s as another solution to a different problem around gender that the 1950s and 60s saw, uh, you know, a different answer is like, well, it was choice in the preexistence or it's contingent. You're going to lose it. And that those doctrines sort of lose popularity or favor among senior church leadership and, and the doctrines of the eternalness of gender reemerge during that later period. Ooh, that's a good teaser for a little bit later on in the interview. We're talking with Taylor Petrie today. He's associate professor of religion at Kalamazoo College and also the editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. We're talking about the book Tabernacles of Clay, sexuality and gender in modern Mormonism. All right, let's go ahead to chapter two here with the little, the pun in your title, Sodom and Cumorah. Uh I suppose you couldn't resist that pun. <laughs> it was too good. I actually, it was, a, somebody had given it to me a little late in the process and I was like, I got to name the whole chapter that. It was yeah. So good. Yeah. You're looking at how the church understood same sex relationships from the 1950s through the seventies. And the history here shows the church actually made some pretty big shifts in how it understood homosexuality. Let's talk about those shifts. I put forward a, maybe, I think, totally intuitive to me, but maybe a little bit controversial. The idea that homosexuality is actually invented in the Latter-day Saint tradition in the 1950s. And what I mean by that is that there's a shift from thinking of sodomy as a kind of set of practices that one might engage in to homosexuality as being an identity, as being a mental condition, and specifically a psychological condition that people might suffer from, as, as Latter-day Saint leaders uh, might have understood it. And so we see a shift away from thinking about this as a set of forbidden practices to being a whole identity, a way of being in the world that church leaders begin to pay attention to and regulate. And so uh, there's really a really pretty dramatic shift away from thinking about, you know, punitive treatment for people who might engage in same-sex intercourse to a whole apparatus for treating people's psychological conditions in order to provide them what they were promising at the time as a cure for the malady of homosexuality. You note a shift from kind of moral discourse to psychological discourse, this idea that these are sinful actions that a person undertakes that maybe they're tempted by Satan to do, to this being like a psychological condition that, that had particular causes and then also then had particular cures as well. Nationally, what was happening in talk about homosexuality? How was America kind of understanding homosexuals at this time? In the 50s specifically. Well, you know, before that, before the 1950s, just a little bit of background on this. Uh, the, the notion of the kind of psychological cure for homosexuality was actually the sort of progressive view. Progressives had kind of latched on to Freudian psychology and, and sort of had, had seen this idea of like, oh, you know, look at these poor people who, who are suffering and we can 
provide them help with psychological care, with a modern science of psychology and psychoanalysis, you know. And so those ideas had kind of emerged in liberal Christianity originally, whereas conservatives were still kind of using the, the moral discourse of condemnation and, and so on rather than a, a sort of pastoral outreach and help and so on. Like God will destroy them kind of thing. Yeah. That's right. In the 1950s, there are a lot of things that are happening to kind of change broader American culture with respect to homosexuality. First of all, you know, many men had had uh, had sex with other men during the war. They come home and, you know, are moving to big cities. There's a emerging gay subcultures that are happening there. The same thing, as we mentioned, among uh, lesbians is happening, too. Women are having more freedom. The fact that they were working and that they weren't working with men and uh, uh, during during the war again, also sort of changes and, and, and contributes to the rise of more and more of these subcultures. They existed in cities long before this, of course, but, uh, you know, they, we really see a larger rise and organization of these communities uh, happening during this time period. Meanwhile, conservatives like Latter-day Saints are looking to psychology and this Freudian psychology as a solution to these problems more and more, whereas liberal Christians begin to say, wait a second, maybe we actually shouldn't be thinking of this as a sickness or as an illness. We should be listening to these communities who are telling us that they're not sick, they're not ill, they don't need our help, and maybe we should just let them be be themselves. Um, Conservatives are, are sort of now glomming on to those ideas of psychological cure. And these are really contested issues within the psychological community during this time period, the secular psychological community. By the time we get to the early 1970s, we see a pretty quick about face where uh, the uh, psychological associations finally depathologize homosexuality officially uh, by vote in their organizations to say we're not going to consider this a mental illness anymore. Latter-day Saints and other conservatives reject that sort of secular assessment and see it as a betrayal of the morality that uh, that they really had held on to. And sort of we see that mingling of the moral evaluation with the psychological evaluation and a kind of revival or attempt to hold on to some of those now abandoned theories of uh, homosexuality as a pathology, as a mental illness. And, uh, and so the church really fully leans in to this psychological view now. And you also note there's this decline of civilization narrative that starts, this story that starts to be told as professional associations and others are coming to see homosexuality differently, not as as a failure. But then there's this moral panic of, wait a minute, if, if this becomes accepted, civilization itself is is going to be destroyed. What's this narrative about? Just as we see a sort of psychological assessment of homosexuality as a mental illness, we're also seeing a kind of pseudo-sociological theory of sexual misconduct as a social illness and that, uh, you know, there are all of these kind of pseudo histories that are being written and a whole intellectual uh, uh, history here of conservatives making this argument that patriarchy and anti-homosexuality are necessary for the survival of civilization. And these sort of civilization level assessments are really powerful in the 1950s and 1960s and and beyond, in part because the United States is engaged in an existential battle in the Cold War. And every kind of advantage that the United States can have in surviving and thriving in its uh, battle against an existential foe 
um, the communists, uh, the communists becomes really important. So the family and these conservative teachings about sexuality are being framed and sold as necessary for national and civilizational strength and survival. And there are all of these myths that are being told about if you look at the Romans, they fell because of their sexual profligacy. And if you look at the Greeks, they did the same thing. Right. And, uh, you know, all of these efforts to kind of see sexual practices as geopolitical, as having a sort of geopolitical interest. And so Latter-day Saint leaders hop on with this narrative as well. And it, it actually becomes even more existentially threatening because not only does the fall of civilization uh, could happen, but also it sort of could destroy the plan of God, right? So it's it's like the ultimate civilizational decline story. Yeah, you know, one of the things that they're most critical about, uh, again, sort of blending their anti-homosexuality with the kind of uh, discourses around patriarchy. And again, I, I don't mean patriarchy. I, I mean, it, I'm using it the way that yeah, they're used. Yeah, let's unpack that. Yeah, <laughs> that word's got a lot behind it. They're talking about the patriarchal order as a divinely instituted thing. They're saying it all the time. We believe in a patriarchy and they mean it literally, you know. Uh, sometimes, you know, they mean a benevolent patriarchy, but they're really talking about patriarchy, about male rule. And, you know, one of their concerns sort of jointly around anti-feminism and around anti-homosexuality is this idea that homosexuality is not reproductive. And, you you know, they opposed birth control during this time period very strongly, right? They they were very pronatalist. Church leaders were very pronatalist. And pro-baby. They saw in homosexuality a threat to the production of children, to reproduction, uh, just in the same way that they saw it as, a, as a, in abortion and in birth control and in other kinds of things. And they worried – that a non-reproductive sex would become so tempting and so interesting to people, including homosexual sex, that if there weren't social and legal sanctions against it, that within a single generation, everyone might be just exclusively practicing non-reproductive sex, including homosexuality, and there would be no more children anymore. And this is something that they repeated again and again and again, this idea of a kind of national suicide that would happen if homosexuality were permitted. And what I've always found a little bit funny about this is that they seem to be suggesting that homosexuality is extremely alluring, is extremely tempting, that everyone would do it if they could. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and you're not exaggerating either. Like, the, I, I mean, yeah. we, we chuckle about it, but you lay it out in the book like this, this was real. Yeah, they – really worried about this and constantly warned against it. This is a central tension that you bring up. I think throughout the book, there's this conflict within Mormonism itself about how sex is understood. On the one hand, you have so many leaders talking about what scholars would call gender essentialism. This is the, the idea that there are these natural fixed differences between men and women, between male and female. That these are essential things about different people. But then on the other hand, they've also taught that sexual difference has to be nurtured, has to be guarded because it's changeable, it's malleable. So on the one hand, it's essential. On the other hand, it could change at the drop of a hat. And th this seems like a paradox here. Uh, I think that's a great way of putting it. That's, uh, that's exactly right. You know, on the one hand, they say that it is fixed, it's durable, it, you, you know, you can't change it. It's God. God has put it in place or nature has put it in place in this way. And on the other hand, it's so fragile 
that permitting homosexuality to be legal, uh, allowing women to wear pants at one point was was very controversial. If women went to work, they would become lesbians because they would learn the aggressive ways of the business world and that would make their desires shift toward women, you know. Right. And again, we look back at these things and we're like, they, they couldn't have been serious. No, they were dead serious. Mm-hmm. This is really what they were teaching. I still think there are some people that have have these views, actually. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Again, like like around those issues around race, some of these older views definitely still linger in the LDS culture. So I, I just wanted to try to point out, again, sort of looking at this idea of gender as being fixed, as gender being eternal and an eternal characteristic of trying to uncover the ways that church leaders saw it as so fragile and also, as you said, as malleable as something that could and should be shaped as conditioned and cultivated. Right. So it's you, you point out that, that that sort of threat can actually become the solution here. So during this time period and putting it within Christianity, Christian salvation itself was making a shift right now. It was more toward self-realization, like through Christ, you become your true self, you progress, you advance. And Latter-day Saints were picking up on these same sort of progressive Christian ideas. And so the fact that sex was malleable also meant that you could fix it, that you could be cured. And so this is a shift we're seeing in Latter-day Saint discourse here with Spencer W. Kimball's Miracle of Forgiveness book. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So Kimball really was a part of um, not necessarily the the kind of professional psychological uh, perspectives that were kind of dominating his day, mm-hmm. but the popular psychological perspectives mm-hmm. that right. dominated in his day. Uh, he cites a number of leaders of what we now would call the New Thought Movement. And the New Thought Movement was this idea that you could sort of control your destiny and uh, by, by controlling your thoughts. And so uh, he was very invested in this sort of idea. And we see this happening in other popular movements that are coming out, you know, The Power of Positive Thinking by Norman Vincent Peale is a book that's published in this time period. And it turns out that Norman Vincent Peale and Spencer W. Kimball are friends and know each other, you know. Uh, and so well, yeah. Spencer W. Kimball is kind of drawing on these ideas of the power of positive thinking, and they influence his book, uh, The Miracle of Forgiveness, for instance. It's very much about disciplining the mind in order to discipline one's practices and, and shape one's self. And, and I like the way that you put it, that there's this sort of broader change that's happening in American Christianity of this time period of self-actualization, self-realization as being the kind of dominant way that Christians come to talk about. And absolutely, Latter-day Saints are participating in that movement as well. And seeing the kind of cultivation of the self through a regulation of sexual desire as an especially powerful way of doing that. And you see Spencer W. Kimball, on the one hand, he'll be speaking incredibly negatively about homosexuality, referring to, to people as menaces and using this very, very harsh language. And then on the other hand, he's also asking church members to treat them with sympathy. He seems to be torn between sort of being disgusted and feeling sympathetic. Yeah. You know, really more than any other Latter-day Saint during this time period, he met with and counseled with thousands of gay Latter-day Saints during the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. 
And I would wager to bet that nearly every gay Latter-day Saint during that time period met with Spencer W. Kimball. <laughs> you know, he was sort of out and about on the town and working with everybody that he could. And he kind of had developed these uh, these theories uh, around it. On the one hand, uh, a deterrence model, right? A very harsh preaching against uh, homosexuality, as you said, very strongly worded uh, uh, terms against it. And on the other hand, this idea of a kind of love and sympathy, the sort of love the sinner, hate the sin model. And in fact, he even uses that language mm, himself, yeah. too. And, you know, it's it's uh, as you said, there's a little bit of contradiction or tension in here. But his perspective is, is that what it means to love the homosexual is to try to change them, is to try to make them give up their homosexual ways, to uh, come back to live what he calls the normal lifestyle of heterosexuality and offer, again, this psychological analysis that this is a disease. He uses a lot of the language, not just of that social language, as you said, around menace and, and so on, but really disease, illness, and this idea of the bishop or himself as the physician who's providing a cure through repentance. And uh, so, yeah, we really see sort of those two sides of him pretty starkly in that book, and but, but all throughout his preaching. You also note how he's adopting, as, as you've kind of suggested, he's, he's adopting the language of secular authorities here. So we see professional organizations start to appear. They're trying to treat homosexuality, to cure homosexuality through secular means, through and through positive thought, but also through therapies. And the church is jumping on that bandwagon here. Even at Brigham Young University, the church's university, they start a values institute. Give us a, just a little bit of history on that values institute and how that went. Yeah. So in some ways, the, the slight predecessor to the values institute is LDS Social Services, which is the welfare or welfare services. It, it kind of changes names. It's sometimes called family services, sometimes social service, sometimes welfare services. But in the uh, late 1960s, uh, the priesthood takes over this organization from what was formerly run by the Relief Society. And they install a number of psychologists to kind of run it. Uh, psychological care and treatment is about to become a very important part of church practices. Bishops are sort of saying, listen, we're not trained psychologists. Psychologists. We're not trained therapists. We need a little bit of help here. And so the church is offering these uh, these new services. And they put in place psychologists who are also, again, trained in the 1950s and 60s and those uh, uh, ideas that had once been dominant views of homosexuality as a pathology. Those uh, psychologists are now running LDS social services and providing psychological care through LDS social services mm -hmm. to people who are, quote unquote, afflicted with this uh, with this mental uh, illness, with uh, with homosexuality. But they're finding that even that in the 1970s is, you know, not quite sufficient. You know, they're not really effective in the ways that they thought that they were going to be. And as I said, the secular authorities on psychology had actually changed their mind on this and were abandoning these ideas. And so those same psychologists at the LDS Social Services go to the church and say, you know what, we need a research institute that can really kind of establish the authority of these ideas that homosexuality can change change, that homosexuality is a pathology. And the church funds this Values Institute, as it's called. It has a longer name, but that's what it comes to be known as mm -hmm. in the 1970s during President 
uh, Oaks's tenure as as president of BYU. He's a now a Latter Day Saint apostle for people who are Latter Day Saints. That's right. Saint, so. Well, well known. Yeah. yeah, and they kind of are working on this idea of they're going to write a book. They're going to publish it with a secular press that's going to prove these uh, these ideas of sort of apologetic for Latter Day Saint teachings through secular means without mentioning Latter Day Saints at all. Uh, that project doesn't really take off in the way that they expected it to, but it uh, is sort of in some ways is a symbol first failure of the attempt to sort of vindicate LDS teachings mm. through secular means, uh, LDS opposition to homosexuality, and the effectiveness of reparative therapy and, and change therapy and so on. This includes electroshock therapy, right? The Values Institute isn't involved in that. Uh, that's happening in the psychology department. Uh, there are overlaps between members of those two groups, but the aversion therapy or, or electroshock therapy that uh, is happening at BYU a little bit out of date and old fashioned at that time period, but had been practiced uh, in psychological communities for decades uh, to treat homosexuality before that was taken up for uh, about a decade or, or a decade and a half at least at BYU to uh, as one of the things. But it wasn't necessarily associated with the Values Institute. Mm, okay, interesting. That, that was when President Oaks was there, right? That's that's a, that's absolutely true. Yeah. It was it was happening in the psychology department, you know, again, supervised by a, a, a faculty members, not necessarily at the level of administration, but it was a somewhat well-known program on the campus because the honor code office and the BYU police would refer people to that program for treatment that had kind of gotten caught up in their uh, surveillance. You also note the rise during this period of some Latter-day Saint groups that are specifically for uh, gay people at this time. Yeah, so just like we see the rise of Latter-day Saint feminist movements in the 1970s, we also see the rise of Latter-day Saint gay and lesbian organizations in the 1970s that are attempting to find space or accommodation for gay members of the church. And I explicitly say it's just gay members of the church at the time period. They're not really thinking of trans and intersex issues yet. That that's Those are going to come later. But in the 1970s, gay men and, and women are begin to organize. They're writing letters and pamphlets and meeting together. You know, the probably the most important organization that comes out of this period is Affirmation, which was originally an advocacy organization to change the church's teachings on homosexuality to allow for same-sex relationships and to allow for homosexuality all the way back in the 1970s. How did, how did that pan out for Affirmation? Affirmation has had uh, a sort of numerous iterations of its identity, sometimes taking, again, a, an approach to sort of change the church, sometimes taking a very oppositional stance against the church. And, uh, you know, it's sort of you know, uh, kind of tries to mediate between those two identities among its membership and leadership over the over the several decades to yeah find find their find their space their voice. I should point out too, um, a lot of times when we're talking about homosexuality throughout this section, the church was more focused on men than women, right? Uh, lesbians were were lesbians on the radar here very much, or am I am I wrong about that impression? Almost never. There, there are a few, a few things of saying, you know, and women sometimes suffer from this too, but almost exclusively when uh, church leaders are talking about homosexuality publicly, they're talking about men. 
you know, there, there are, I think, a number of possible theories for why they're not talking about women. Uh, maybe women aren't coming to them to confess. <laughs> maybe, you know, they're less interested in, in those kinds of things. But, uh, but for men, yeah, this is really, when we talk about homosexuality during this period, how the church framed their own interests in it, they saw it almost exclusively in terms of regulating and curing men. And you also mentioned trans issues. Are they starting to get any attention during this period? There is a little bit of uh, popular discussion about trans issues in American culture, again, all the way back to the 1950s. The first transsexual surgeries were happening in the 1950s, and these were front page news, and and the, and there were celebrity trans people in the mm-hmm. 1950s. And so church members and leaders certainly were aware of, uh, of these kinds of things, but we don't really see public comment on it until the 1970s. And it's often thought of, uh, that is, transsexuality is often thought of as a sort of extreme form or the logical outcome of homosexuality. You know, they thought of homosexuality as becoming like a woman and and becoming trans would then be sort of the logical outcome of that, you know, uh, uh, the fe- the full feminization uh, of the male homosexual. And so we see, again, a, a sort of conflation of trans and, and uh, homosexual issues happening in the 1970s. And that's the way that they talked about it and thought about it. That's Taylor Petrie. He's associate professor of religion at Kalamazoo College and editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. And we're talking about the book Tabernacles of Clay, Sexuality and Gender in Modern Mormonism. There's a ton more in that chapter that people can check out in the book. Let's let's go ahead to chapter three here, Politics and the Patriarchal Order. And in this chapter, you're talking about gender roles more specifically and how they were seen for men and women in the 60s and 70s. The church is now confronting what scholars have called egalitarian feminism. Give us a little bit of info about that. So, you know, the broader feminist movement that's happening in the 1960s, 1970s is challenging gender roles. It's challenging the ideas of the family. It's challenging uh, limitations of women in in the workplace and, and so on. And feminists during this time period are pushing for egalitarianism not just equality before the law as the first wave of feminism had kind of put forward women should have the vote they should have an equal vote and so on here we're really talking about a shift in cultural values and in many cases legal values as well where women should be treated equally in the home should be treated equally in the workplace and so on and you know you start to see these movements happening in the church of you know women are saying hey we're in a patriarchal system here and we would like to be treated equally we would like to in, in some cases There are some women who are pushing for the priesthood, but most feminists were just pushing to maybe have the opportunity to go to work or to, you know, have their husbands pitch in more at home or to have an equal say over the finances at home. And uh, and so some some maybe more modest sort of reforms in this egalitarian movement. So the egalitarian feminist concerns are really, again, about sort of reforming the institutions that uh, that women and men found themselves in simultaneously that, that were oftentimes privileging male voices and concerns. How did the church and church leaders accommodate to these? Because Mormonism, as you point out in the book, didn't simply reject these social changes and these social pressures. They also made some accommodations here. In some respects, in the 1950s and 60s, the church is strictly uh, following what they would call the patriarchal order. And they're sniffing out all of these places where there are actually places of women's equality or even women's power, and they're taking them away. So the Relief Society is greatly diminished 
for instance, during this time period. We mentioned already the way that the priesthood sort of takes away the social services arm of the Relief Society, for instance. Their budget. Their their budget, their, their magazine. Yeah. The Relief Society is really, yeah, loses a lot of power because there's an ideology that, uh, that the church needs to be patriarchal and that's actually failed at not being patriarchal enough. And so there are all of these reformers who are making the church more patriarchal during the 1950s and 60s. There's a big stretch of time where women aren't allowed to pray in sacrament meeting because it's thought to be a priesthood function, a priesthood meeting and so on. And so, you know, there are a number of feminists who are coming and, and non-feminist women who are sort of saying, wait a second here, not that long ago, yeah. we, we, we had some power here and now all that's gone, you know. And so there are, there are various reform efforts to kind of help the church be more friendly to a sort of very moderate, very modest feminist concerns in some cases, but there are also much more, quote unquote, radical feminists who are calling for full equality in the church, who are calling for women to be ordained to the priesthood because there are other women in other religious traditions during this time period who are obtaining ordination in their churches. There's a women's ordination movement happening all across American Christianity. And, uh, you know, Latter-day Saint women are seeing women preachers and women pastors and, and women priests in different religious traditions and saying, well, why not us also? It was interesting to see during this chapter, too, where the church would talk about how it was different from the world, the world would be this thing against which the church was compared. The world does this, the church does this. But there were these examples where the church followed right along with the world. And one important example, I think, in this chapter is the role of sex itself, the sex between heterosexual couples that previously it was talked about as being something that was for procreation. The purpose of sex was to have children. There was a shift here. The, the, the role of sex expanded here significantly. Yeah, there's really what I call a sexual revolution in Mormonism in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s around birth control. Birth control reshapes American culture in general, and there's a larger sexual revolution, of course, that's happening in American culture where sex outside of marriage is, is much more common. Recreational sex becomes uh, much more possible and safer for people to engage in. And you've got everything from the normalization of pornography and, and Playboy, all, you know, there's broader shifts that are happening in American culture. And Latter-day Saints are oftentimes very resistant and hesitant and, and oppose those cultural shifts. But at the same time, just like, uh, you know, Mormon women are calling for more egalitarian marriages, just like they're expecting of their non-Latter-day Saint peers. There's a kind of broader shift that's happening among sexual attitudes among church members and where uh, church leaders were saying sex is for the sole purpose of procreation. You should have as many children as possible. There are all kinds of social and economic pressures that are pushing people away from that ideal. And Latter-day Saints are actually using birth control in contradiction to the teachings of the church leaders. And so church leaders really start to soften some of those teachings until they ultimately abandon them in uh, the early 1980s officially by saying that now birth control is a private choice. It's not something that the church is going to get involved in anymore. But that really kind of re represents this culmination of a new ideology of sex that emerges in the church, where it used to be only for the sole purpose of procreation. 
it now is for the purpose of spousal bonding as well. And church leaders begin to talk about sex, not in terms of procreation, but in terms of this emotional dimension to sexuality, uh, of this relational dimension of sexuality. It suddenly sort of covers a much broader sphere of things than it had previously done for earlier church leaders. And so I try to situate this redefinition of sex in a sort of broader context of a sexual revolution in America, but also a sexual revolution that's happening in the church. And birth control is the most obvious place where that's happening. Mm. And that kind of takes us up to a really important Mormon document called The Family, A Proclamation to the World. And this was published in 1995. And this kind of laid out the church's stance on what marriage is, what family looks like. Um, It emphasizes marriage between, uh, between a man and a woman. It talks about roles that men and women have within families and responsibilities that they have. And it's it's pitched towards society. And that wasn't completely unusual then because, as you note earlier, the church had already been getting involved politically now. It sort of saw the need not just to preach morals but also to talk to society and to talk about legal issues as well. Was that a big shift for the church to start getting involved in, in legal cases? Yes. You know, I mean, certainly the church had uh, a long history of getting involved in local politics, certainly in some respects, national political issues that directly affected them around plural marriage, for instance. But uh, we see the church sort of joining a coalition of the religious right that's emerging as a cultural force during this same time period. And one of the places where the church is finding agreement and allies with other religious groups like conservative Catholics and evangelical Protestants is on the politicization of the family itself. And these are larger, uh, again, cultural issues that are happening, again, around the feminist movement, around abortion, around uh, around birth control laws even, uh, certainly around homosexuality. And there becomes a kind of reorientation of the political landscape where these religious groups, including Latter-day Saints, strike up an alliance and a coalition to put forward conservative social policies on these issues. In some respects, these grew out of previous people who had opposed racial integration. These same groups are reconstitute now around gender and sexuality issues, and that becomes a much more effective strategy than their opposition to racial integration a few decades before that. But, you know, the the church sort of finds that these people that used to be bitter enemies— Catholics, evangelical Protestants, and in many cases were continued uh, rivals, religious rivals, are now willing to meet with them and willing to work with them on, on political issues. So it becomes a way for the church in some ways to integrate into broader American culture by uh, joining on with these political culture wars. So as you mentioned, the, the proclamation, as it's sometimes called, the family, the proclamation to the world, is in some respects sort of outgrowth of the church's opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s. And uh, as the church is now finding itself in the middle of the 1990s, its opposition to same-sex marriage movements that are uh, just beginning to pop up in the national landscape. And the church says, let's bring the old gang back together again to uh, that oppose the Equal Rights Amendment. We're all going to get back together. Now we're going to oppose same-sex marriage. And again, it, this becomes a way for the church to sort of join hands with other people who might, in other cases, be adversaries uh, to have these new allies. Yeah, I remember during the Proposition 8 stuff in the 2000s, hearing church members remark that it, you know, it was amazing that church leaders had put the proclamation out in 1995. 
sort of the idea that it was prophetic, that it's kind of sound of the future. But your research suggests that it, it actually was a direct outgrowth of political battles that were already being waged as early as 1993. Certainly in the in the public sphere in 1993, uh, uh, Hawaii is the first case to really uh, the first state to really sort of consider legalizing same sex marriage through a bunch of court battles that were happening uh, during that time period. But, you know, there are same-sex marriage movements dating back to the 1970s, and even in the church's literature opposing the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s, one of their major arguments for opposing the Equal Rights Amendment is that it might lead to same-sex marriage. So that's already on their radar many decades before. There were efforts to have same-sex marriages be legalized in the 1970s, and in the 1980s, Elder Oaks, who we had talked about as the former president of BYU, as a new apostle, he actually writes a memo explaining, listen, same-sex marriage is coming down the pike. This is a decade before uh, th- th- it actually happens, but they knew that, that this was going to be an issue at some point because everybody who was living during that time period sort of said, ah, this is the extreme case that might happen at some point. So, you know, everybody, everybody sort of saw same-sex marriage as the inevitable battle that was going to happen at some point. Do you think the church's approach was much different during these, like Proposition 22, Proposition 8, these anti-same-sex marriage bills. How was the church's approach different toward these than it was like with ERA? Were there any differences in its overall approach? In many ways, it adopted a very similar strategy. They they attempted to kind of find minor ways of accommodating social change. They wanted to emphasize that they believed in equality, that they believed in the dignity of their opponents, but at the same time resisted any social change as something that they painted as very dangerous for society and so on. So we saw them describe the ERA in terms of civilizational collapse, civilizational decline, those narratives that we talked about, and that same language sort of reemerges when they talk about same-sex marriage. It's also going to lead to civilizational decline. It's going to lead to gender confusion. It's going to lead to children not knowing about gender roles and so on. And so they very much are kind of replaying some of the same scripts in Mm. both cases. All right, that's Taylor Petrie, and we're talking about Tabernacles of Clay, Sexuality and Gender in Modern Mormonism. Your next chapter is called The Death and Resurrection of the Homosexual. This is chapter five, and from the year 2000 up to the present, your book argues that the church changed in some significant ways uh, about sex and gender, and you break these changes up into some different categories I wrote down here. You say that there were some theological changes, linguistic changes, psychological transitions, and political transitions. And I thought we could just spend just a quick moment on each of these. I want people to check the book out to, to really dig in, but let's just spend a moment, begin with theological. What's an example of a big theological transition that happened from the year 2000 to today? One of the teachings that really starts to emerge in, in this period is the theological changes. Some respects a response to the failures of the psychological treatments that they had been pursuing for several decades at that point. Uh, it turns out that uh, sexuality is very hard to change and that uh, it wasn't happening in the ways that they had promised in, in many cases. And so you start to see the church shifting away from saying that sexuality needs to be cured in this life to suggesting that, well, maybe it won't be cured in this life and it can be cured in the next life. And so there's this new teaching that emerges of uh, a sort of delay of the cure to uh, after death. This is a slightly dangerous doctrine because it suggests that when you die, you won't be homosexual anymore. 
perhaps uh, becoming a, a, a method for some people to take their own lives in pursuit of that goal. You know, it's it, it's a pretty unpopular doctrine uh, for, for a lot of reasons. But you start to see in that doctrine an, a, an attempt to deal with, again, a change in their understandings of perhaps homosexuality is a little bit more fixed than we originally imagined. Yeah, I want to draw a parallel there. I, I've done research on disability in, in Mormonism, and mine was in the 19th century. So during the uh, 1800s, during the time of polygamy, disabilities, birth defects, intellectual disabilities were thought to be the outcome of if immoral behavior by parents and things like this. And Latter-day Saint leaders taught that through a pure marriage practice of polygamy, those things would be done away with, that offspring would be perfected, and you would see the rise of this strong Mormon race, basically. And, you know, obviously that <laughs> polygamy didn't resolve disabilities. And so because of the actual evidence at hand, they had to shift that theology. They had We had to shift that story away from saying that we were going to do away with it on earth. And the solution was the same. It was that in the resurrection, these things would be taken care of. I think I, I just think that's really striking, especially because we still, I, I think homosexuality in, in church discourse is sometimes lumped in with uh, disability at this point. It, it directly is, yeah. I mean, church leaders begin to, they shift away from saying um, homosexuality is like alcoholism to start to say that homosexuality is like a birth defect, a disability in some in some ways. And so, yeah, I think that you're absolutely right to say they're drawing on some earlier teachings in order to kind of reformulate these doctrines of homosexual cures in the afterlife. But it also, again, signals a shift away from thinking of this as a psychological disorder to being a disability. And that, uh, that kind of shift in, in understanding of the nature of homosexuality brings along with it a whole theological apparatus to help make sense of it. Yeah, so that's the theological and the psychological. They're sort of mingling together there. Um, so that that's an example of how those are shifting during the 2000s. How about linguistic transitions? What is that about? Yeah, so there's a, a kind of funny history that I discovered that I was really trying to make sense of over and over and over again as I was looking at all, all of these sources where I, I mentioned that homosexuality is invented as a concept in the church in the 1950s. And we see the church using, church leaders using the term homosexual, homosexuality, very freely during that time period. By the end of the 1970s, there's really a kind of emergence of a taboo on the language of homosexual and homosexuality, gay, lesbian, all of these kinds of terms, in part because the church believes that they might cause the condition. If you label someone as gay or lesbian or homosexual, then that's only going to sort of reaffirm their identity in that way. And so they say, no, don't ever call anybody that. And so they say, you know, say that they have homosexual desires or something along those lines. By the time we get to the 1990s, the church finally sort of lands on an alternative term, same-sex attraction. Uh, and this becomes a sort of substitution for the language of homosexuality, of gay, of lesbian, and so on. And so they're really kind of fighting this, this – uh, there's a whole ideology behind these terms here. There's a fascinating thing that happens by the end of the 2000s where the church sort of finally gives up what they had once called a doctrine 
of opposing the language of homosexuality to say, uh, okay, you can call yourself gay. You can call yourself homosexual. You can call yourself a lesbian. You can call yourself queer. That's not something that we're going to concern ourselves with anymore. And so they sort of abandon the fight over language during that time period. And uh, this happens in terms of the policy changes at BYU, where there's a change to the honor code that allows students to now self-identify as gay and lesbian and queer. And we also see that happening in sort of broader church communication that's going on during that time period where they start to they launch a website called Mormon and Gay, Mormons and Gays. Uh, and they start to kind of use that language uh, much more freely in their public communication, whereas before it was completely forbidden. And now they're saying, oh, it's OK. So there again, there's, that's one of the other major shifts. Right. And the, the line they draw is like, go ahead and identify that way, but don't act in those. Right. There's still this very stark line of like those things are not approved within Mormonism. Actually, homosexual behavior, same sex relationships are not approved, but they're allowing for those identity tags. That's right. So, you know, whereas I think we could see it as like there was once a larger circle of what was considered homosexual activity and what was included in homosexual activity in that earlier period included identifying as gay, uh, using the term homosexual to describe oneself or another person. That was considered a practice of homosexuality that had been forbidden. Mm, yeah. The practices shrink a little bit and it becomes just sexual exchange, not language anymore. We're not going to police language like we used to. And you're, you're exactly right that there still is a line there. But I also want to say the language around homosexual activity was considered homosexual activity before. Right. <laughs> So that's the shift there. And then the last one was political transitions. What political transitions have you seen during this time? So the church was engaged in anti-homosexual legislation practices, especially around same-sex marriage, but not exclusively during this time period. But they start to get a lot of bad press, it turns out, from that. And, and in some ways, people kind of point out, well, listen, you've been saying that you don't oppose gay people, that you're, you, you don't oppose, you know, you don't oppose homosexuality in the legal sphere and so on. But yet, you know, you still have all these discriminatory laws in Utah and so on. So the church really kind of takes that to heart, takes that criticism to heart and begins to shift its legal strategy here from one uh, now that they call the, the fairness for all. Sometimes it's called the Utah compromise. But they say, listen, we want to sort of have protections, legal protections for LGBTQ people. And we also want to have protections for religious liberty. And so the church shifts away entirely from the sort of civilizational collapse language if, if same-sex marriage would happen, if, if homosexuality was permitted in society, to now, again, sort of shifting to that smaller circle of saying, no, we just want religious liberty, which is a kind of a, a more minor area of concern for them. And so the shift away from family values, from civilizational interests in opposing homosexuality to well, we just want to practice our own stuff undisturbed. We want to be able to, to have, you know, discrimination in our communities, in our religious contexts here that's not going to be overseen by the federal government and so on. That's one of the other major shifts in political strategy is the sort of rise of religious freedom as in the alternative. And what protections exactly does the church want? Like what would be lost? What religious freedom needs to be protected? The freedom to do what? This is a great question. And I think one that is sometimes confusing to people, including myself sometimes, of what they want, what they mean. What the church tends to mean by this when they talk about it is religious freedom for the institution. 
And this is primarily around issues of the businesses that the church owns and runs, the church organization itself, of course, but also things like the universities that the church runs as well. For instance, should the universities that the churches run allow for same-sex married students to attend? Should they be able to have housing for same-sex students uh, uh, who are married uh, together, for instance? What kinds of laws and regulations should they have to follow for equal protection that other secular universities would have to do? You know, should the church have to do those things as well? And so the church is really in some ways looking for a carve-out for the various institutions that it runs. When it's talking about religious freedom, they're talking about BYU. They're talking about the, the the businesses that the church itself owns to be able to kind of follow their own religious teachings and to be implemented in those places that they have direct control or influence over. They're a little more ambivalent when it comes to like the cake baker, you know, that the, they're sometimes in favor, sometimes saying, no, nah, maybe we should make some accommodations there. But they're not really talking about individual practices so much when they're talking about religious freedom. They're talking about the church itself as an institution to be able to operate in the way that it wants I to. I can't help but draw a parallel to segregation, to this idea of separate but equal when it came to race, that there were people that wanted to have white-only spaces, black-only spaces – to maintain segregation as a marker of freedom, of liberty, the liberty to discriminate. And it just seems like – it seemed to me like a pretty obvious parallel. I'm interested in your thoughts about whether that's a fair comparison and how sustainable it is for the church to want these protections to discriminate in, in, in effect. I, I mean different people would contest the validity of the comparison, but there's no doubt that there is a direct parallel between the two arguments. Religious organizations in the 19th 19- 60s after interracial marriage was legalized and after the civil rights legislation argued for religious freedom carve outs so that they wouldn't have to integrate so that they wouldn't have to follow those same laws. BYU itself was sort of caught up in these kinds of things for engaging in racial segregation practices uh, and so on. And the church was then arguing for religious freedom and you need to respect our religious freedom. And again, as a culture, we have a healthy respect for religious institutions that might want to have a different take on things, right? And the church often kind of draws on that history, that tradition, that that general respect that's enshrined in the U.S. Constitution as a a way of sort of protecting itself. But I mean, I'm sympathetic absolutely to the comparison between the issues around race and the issues around sexuality uh, that, that are happening in part because the arguments absolutely mirror one another. They they were making the same kinds of arguments around race uh, as they are around sexuality now. And as we mentioned before, we've spent a lot of time talking particularly about homosexuality and particularly about how it pertains to men and somewhat women now that the marriage question has come into it. People that check out the book can see there's more to the story. But I wonder before, before we go here, what you make of the church's current stance, where the church is right now and People will want to know, someone who's done the research like you, if you foresee change, even more change than what we've seen so far. It's difficult to say what changes we're going to see in the future. Historians can't predict, of course, though I can say with confidence that there will be changes. I think that there are a couple of directions that the church might go, however. I think that we can kind of look over the last 70-year period that I cover in the book and draw a number of different lessons and possibilities uh, of things that the church might do. 
One is that we could look to how the church changed its teachings on race as one possible example. We saw that the church had a set of doctrines that they put forward that they believed and taught were fixed and unchanging and impossible to change because they had been divinely instituted around race. And those were sort of walked back carefully and slowly demoted to things like council, you know, and then eventually reversed entirely. And a new story emerged as this is the long promised day that we had all been waiting for and it's finally arrived. And so we could see a complete reversal. We also might see something along the lines of what the church has done with respect to feminist challenges to the church, which is to very gradually make some accommodations. And so we see, for instance, the abandonment of what was once called the patriarchal order of marriage and was taught all the time to now you can't find any church leader who has uttered those words in the last 30 years. But the 30 years before that were dominated. Every single general conference mentioned the patriarchal order of marriage. And so we might see, again, a kind of softening, uh, a walking back of some of those enshrined in the language, for instance, of the proclamation on the family where you have fathers preside. And then you also have that parents are equal partners, right? So you kind of have those existing side by side in some tension. And, uh, you know, we might see, you know, accommodations around women that included everything from women now being able to pray in sacrament meeting to then being there being a push for women to pray in general conference. And, you know, more prestige given to the Relief Society presidency of the church, the General Relief Society presidency, all these kind of softer accommodations that the church might make. We may see more and more of that around the issue of homosexuality, of trans rights. We have seen even in the last few years since the book came out that the church has said that it's okay to use your preferred pronouns and preferred name in church if you're trans. You know, there are still a lot of restrictions. The church is not a friendly place for for most trans people. But uh, again, we might see accommodations along those lines. So there's never really been an abandonment of the church's teachings around patriarchy. There's uh, certainly still a division between male and female with respect to the priesthood. And we might see that the church kind of finds its way to navigate through this culture, not to the satisfaction of, of everyone, certainly, but perhaps enough to, you know, kind of make their way forward in, in the world. The other option that I think that we might see, just to lay this out, is that we might see that the church takes a more conservative position, uh, that the church sort of digs in and says, no, this is the thing that makes us different from the world, and we are going to suffer all of the social consequences for that because it is absolutely something that we cannot change. We believe God has given it to us. And in some ways, the church leaders are often signaling that that's exactly what they're going to do. You know, we have a number of talks from general authorities saying we're not backing down on this. We're willing to kind of go down uh, with the ship. If if BYU is going to be, you know, exiled from good society because of our teachings on this, then so be it. So in some cases, the church leaders are sometimes signaling that that's the direction that they might take. And I think that for many members of the church, we might need to be prepared that that's the direction the church is going to go. Again, I can't predict what they're going to do. Any and all of those are possible or some combination of all of those over the next 15, 20, 30, 40 years. But certainly the church is 
not done with this issue and is going to continue to be facing tough issues with respect to this for the, for several decades. That's Taylor Petrie, associate professor of religion at Kalamazoo College and editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. And we're talking about his book, Tabernacles of Clay, Sexuality and Gender in Modern Mormonism. All right, Taylor, thank you so much. We're going to take a quick break, which in the past, like, would be you talking about dialogue. <laughs> but, uh, okay, we will, uh, we'll be right back with the best book recommendation. All right, it's time to stir up the embers a little bit, keep the flames going a little bit longer as season one of Fireside is about to be over. I can't believe it. 10 episodes all in the books. And if this is the first episode that you've checked out and you're enjoying it, I hope you'll go back and check out the other interviews. There are nine other great episodes this season. Let's take a look at the reviews that came in. Uh, we have one here from Jedriel. It says, the Fireside Podcast immediately pulls you in, like you're in the middle of a conversation that you absolutely want to be part of. Thanks for that excellent review. I really appreciate that in, in Apple Podcasts. We have one from PJ3U. It says, great insights into ideas I never even thought to think of. Well, I, I mean, I feel the same way. The, the books that I'm encountering and, and the authors that I'm inviting to be on the show are all people that are uh, bringing new things to my attention, and that, that's what I love about the show. Uh, that's what I love about making the show. Uh, my friend Bill Smith sent in a review. He said he really appreciated the Elaine Pagels interview. Thanks for that, Bill. Uh, I actually thought about you a little bit when I was putting that one together. So thanks for sending in that review. And then we have one from Bryclops8, who says, every episode changes me for the better. Well, thank you for that. Again, you can review the show in Apple Podcasts. You can also rate the show in Spotify. If you don't use either of those platforms, you can leave a comment on the website. Just go to the particular episode, scroll down past the transcript, and you can leave a comment there. And I really appreciate any feedback like that. So thanks for these reviews. It's never too late to leave a review. All right, while we're waiting for season two, I also have a few podcast recommendations. I was thinking about two of them in particular as I was putting this episode together about uh, Mormonism and LGBTQ issues. If you're interested in the Latter-day Saint tradition in particular, especially about LGBTQ issues, then you can check out the show Husband-in-Law. This is kind of a, it's a laid-back show. It's really conversational and funny and it's really surprising. Basically, there's Steve and Jessica, and they were happily married for seven years. Uh, as members of the LDS church, but then Steve came out, uh, he's gay, and they ended up getting divorced. And then Jessica remarried a man uh, called Matt. But the twist is that now Matt and Steve, <laughs> they work together. And the three of them, all three of them are really great friends. And they decided to start a podcast because as it turns out, their situation isn't unheard of. In a conservative religious tradition like this tradition, it often produces mixed orientation marriages where a gay person marries a straight person. And in uh, most cases, these relationships don't end up working out or they work out in a really unexpected way like this one uh, where they're remaining friends and really close friends and decided to make a podcast about it. So if you like some laid back, but really heartfelt chat about modern marriage and divorce, then uh, check out Husband-in-Law. Another show I wanted to recommend is Questions from the Closet. Uh, you may have heard of this show by Ben Shalati and Charlie Bird, and it's about the LGBTQ experience within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from the perspective of currently practicing members of the church. And they answer all kinds of questions, like how can I come out to my family? Or what do, what do the scriptures say about gay issues, stuff like that. And every episode addresses a question and they have guests. It's a really, really fantastically done show. I, I highly recommend it. That's Questions from the Closet. Another podcast recommendation is Making Meaning, a show called Making Meaning. And this is a limited podcast series from Ministry of Ideas. My friend Zachary Davis created this show and the episodes are really bite-sized. They're usually under 10 minutes and you'll meet philosophers and psychologists and other really thoughtful people, scholars talking about how humans make meaning of our lives. 
Uh, is happiness a good life goal? How does capitalism impact the way that we personally relate to each other? What is virtue? What does it mean to be virtuous? Why does music move us so much? These are the kind of questions that Fireside Friends love to think about, I think. Again, it's it's the kind of thing that, that I'm trying to do with this show uh, in a bite-sized format, like under 10 minutes. The show's called Making Meaning for Ministry of Ideas. So hit pause really quick in your podcast app. Go search that up, Making Meaning, and then hit that subscribe button. You won't regret it. You can also find it on their website, ministryofideas.org. All right, one more podcast recommendation. This one's a new podcast by my friend Kate Harleen, and I'll let her give you the gist. Hi, I'm Kate Harleen, host of the Deeper Hearts Club. As a licensed therapist, I've spent thousands of hours with hundreds of people who are struggling or suffering in some way. There are people like me and people like you. Being a therapist is like having a front row seat to human struggle. And I've learned that while everyone's story is unique, we are all human, so our stories are variations on some common themes. Like maybe you can relate to Tiari. I would way rather feel physical pain than emotional pain any day of the week. So what I do is I push things deep down <laughs> so mm-hmm. that I don't feel them. Or maybe Pam. Yeah, and I was damn good at following the formula. And so when I didn't control my fate, I think that's sort of when like the footing came loose. Nick's take might sound familiar. I kind of had this pollution idea, this maybe a toxic take on what it means to love someone. Or Michael's experience might resonate. I did suppress so much of my identity, and it feels so sad. In the Deeper Hearts Club, I talk with real, everyday people doing their best to navigate struggle with wisdom and resilience. In other words, with a deeper heart. And although a podcast isn't a replacement for therapy, it can be a really great way to relate to other people and gain insights that can help you navigate the often choppy waters of life too. If my thousands of hours in that front row seat have taught me anything, it's that we live better when we go deeper, into ourselves and into the experience of being human. I hope you'll join me in the Deeper Hearts Club. So go hit that subscribe button, the Deeper Hearts Club. If it seems like a lot of recommendations, um, if you're like me, I, I just like trying out new shows. And, you know, Fireside's not going to be back for a little while, so you have time. Uh, the time you spent with Fireside, you can go check out Making Meaning. You can go check out Husband-in-Law. You can check out Questions from the Closet. You can check out the Deeper Hearts Club. I, I don't think you'll regret it. I think you'll enjoy these shows. Before Season 2 of Fireside with Blair Hodges comes out, I hope that you'll recommend this show to a friend. If, if everybody, if you brought one person with you and, and had one person listen to this if everybody did that we could double this audience that would be incredible that would feel great i would really appreciate it so just recommend it to one person that's all i'm asking you to do and i want to keep in touch with you so you can also subscribe to the fireside newsletter that's at bit.ly slash news, or you can go to firesidepod.org there will be an annoying pop-up with an invitation to sign up for the newsletter i'm not going to send spam out it'll just keep you up to date on sneak peeks about what's coming ahead again the newsletter is at firesidepod.org or bit.ly slash podfiresidenews. Okay, that's a lot of stuff. Let's review. Go check out those podcast recommendations. Go rate and review Fireside with Blair Hodges. Go commit one friend to listen to the show like MLM style and sign up for the newsletter. Thanks for being here at Fireside with Blair Hodges and you're the reason that I love making this show.
We're back with Taylor Petrie. He's associate professor of religion at Kalamazoo College and editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Today, we talked about his book, Tabernacles of Clay, Sexuality and Gender in Modern Mormonism. And there's a lot more to the story than what we were able to cover today. And if there was something that you wanted to know about in particular that we didn't cover, I'm sorry. I did my best to navigate. Uh, Taylor, thank you so much for talking about it. It's it's a pretty complicated topic. Thank you. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's, it's not easy, that's for sure. Let's talk about best books. This is a, a segment that we do where we invite our guests to recommend a book. It could be related to your research and your project, or or it could be something that you just like, something you read recently. Uh, I've even suggested it could be something you severely loathe, but nobody has taken me up on the, on the best worst book possibility. So what'd you bring for us? Well, I'm going to go for a standby classic that I think that everyone has read at some point in their undergraduate career, but I want to just I, I just want to recommend it one more time, which is Michel Foucault's History of Sexuality, Volume 1. It's a book that in many ways uh, is one that I find myself in, in disagreement with the, the more times I read it, but has still so profoundly shaped the way that I came to approach uh, my own thinking about this and, and certainly the the questions of the book itself. And, and for those who have read the book or who, who will read the book, you'll notice that Foucault is a sort of interlocutor that I have in the book. But he just tells such a dramatically interesting story in that book. And again, one that he himself disagrees with later and, and that I find many points to disagree with. But that the idea that our concepts of sexuality are socially produced, are historically contingent in some way, are, are products of modernity, is I, I think something that we still need to kind of think through and wrestle with the full implications of what he has to say about that. And, you know, that that's something that, that I find myself still wrestling with. I, I've probably read that book, I don't know, 20 times, and I've taught it a dozen or more times in, in various classes and contexts. And I just, every time I reread it, I come back to it thinking, this, there's something here that we still haven't fully grappled with. Mm. Foucault's book, what's the title again? History of Sexuality, Volume 1. Okay. We will add it to the list. Thanks, Taylor. Uh, I wanted to ask, too, what are you working on now? Well, I am a, a, a scholar of early Christianity, as I mentioned, and so I think that the project that I'll be working on over the next three or four years is a history of the second century. But more immediately, we, we discussed that I in 2011, I wrote an article on the theology of Mormonism as it deals with sexuality. And I shifted in this book and Tabernacles of Clay to writing a straight history. But I still have a lot of interests in theology and in cosmology and in LDS, uh, uh, the, the sort of thought world that the uh, Latter-day Saint tradition finds itself in. And so I've been working a little bit on a book manuscript along those lines, and we'll see uh, if that all comes together. That sounds great. Well, Taylor, thanks for doing this interview. It's a little bit longer than some of the other episodes, but we could we could have gone longer. There's just there's a lot here to unpack. So thanks a lot for talking to us. Thank you, Blair. Thank you for listening to Fireside with Blair Hodges. I'm sponsored by the Howard W. Hunter Foundation, supporters of the Mormon Studies Program at Claremont Graduate University in California, and also by the Dialogue Foundation, a proud part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. And if this is the first episode you've checked out, I hope you'll try more. There are 10 total episodes in season one of Fireside with Blair Hodges. And now is a perfect time, by the way, to tell a friend about the show. I would really like to see more people listening and getting excited for season two. If you just bring one person, just get one person to listen, it really would mean the world to me. And in between seasons, I'll also be available to chat on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Pod Fireside, also on Facebook. 
You can email me questions, comments, or suggestions. The address is blair at firesidepod.org. Or you can also leave a comment right on the website, firesidepod.org. Just click on any of the episodes, scroll down past the transcript, and you'll see the comment section there. How many ways do I have to tell you that I'd really like to hear from you? Reach out and let me know what you think about the show. Fireside's recorded, produced, and edited by me, Blair Hodges, in Salt Lake City. Special thanks to my production assistant, Kate Davis, who created the transcript. And also thanks to Christy Franson, Matthew Bowman, Caroline Klein, and Kristen Ulrich Hodges. Season 1's theme music is by Faded Paper Figures. Thanks for joining me at Fireside with Blair Hodges. This is a place to fan the flames of our curiosity about life, faith, and culture together. See you next time.